probably just missing it. I don't see any pews filled up. decorate anything. So the end of Joel chapter 1, uh, we spent a while there looking at the idea of the day of the Lord last week. Um, let's go through the end of the chapter, and then if we have more questions on that, it will, it will come up again uh, in chapter 2. All right, uh, let's see. Can someone read for us verses 16 through 20, or maybe 15 through 20? wants to read 15 through 20? Go ahead. Thanks, Trent. Alas for the day. The day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty occurs, is not the fool cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the cross, the storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beast thrones, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. He, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Are any other parts of the Old Testament that this would remind you of? Just sort of the tone of this? Braden? Okay, yeah, there is a crying out to God. Okay, uh, what do we call those psalms where there's sorrow and crying out to God? Lament. Okay, yeah. So there's a lot of lament psalms. There's obviously the Book of Lamentations. Uh, there's a an expression of sorrow because of sin that has then led to this destruction that they see. Uh, what was 
so on the part of the prophet, there's a lament. On the part of the people, what does their response need to be based on verse 14 that we looked at last week? Okay, repentance. Specifically, that they would show the uh, outward signs of repentance along with a change of heart because um, it would be easy for them to say outwardly, this is bad, we don't like it, please make it stop, as opposed to, we hate our sin and we're turning from it, so God, please have mercy on us and deliver us from all these things. And the same thing, I think, is true today, that it's easy for us to see the consequences of our sin and not like the consequences, but not actually hate the sin that led to it in the first place. So, just briefly here, as we look at the end of chapter 1, what are, the, what are sort of the consequences of their sin? In verses 16 through 20. Okay, destruction, Braden? Okay, yeah, when you would expect it to be the time of harvest, which would be a time, you know, for even for us now, the time of harvest is usually a time of rejoicing and time with family and all those sorts of things, even though most of us are not farming like they would have been, but there is sorrow because their prosperity is cut off. What's, what's some of the visible signs of their prosperity failing, the destruction that's coming, the sorrow? Like verse 17, what do we see? Okay. Yeah, the crops are drying up. So this seems to be, um, if the seeds are not growing and the grain is dried up, um, it seems to be that there's drought going along with the plague of locusts in the first part of the chapter because we also see there's no pasture and that could be a consequence, verse 18, of uh, the locusts eating up all the grass. Uh, then he says, fire is devoured and flame is burned up. Uh, the water brooks are dried up and fire is devoured. Fire in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament is often a picture of destruction so we could see it potentially as a literal fire, because sometimes when things are really dry in times of drought, there are actually fires that sweep over the land. But it could also just be simply a symbolic thing for God's judgment and God's presence because of his anger toward his people and their sin. So let's get in now to chapter 2. Um, let's do... Let's see. Let's, yeah, go ahead. So they've been stubborn and not repenting for a while if the storehouses are empty. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. Uh, chapter 2, let's read verses 1 through 5. Who wants to read that for us? Thank you, Bruce.
let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there ever be again after this. Through the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden Eden before them, but the desolated wilderness is behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. They like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of the chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming stone, like a mighty people arranged for battle. I'm going to read six, is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. Before them, the people are in anguish. Continue? Uh, that's good, I think. Uh, I mean, it kind of continues all the way down through 17, but we'll, let's just take this first little chunk of it here. Um, verse 1 is saying what? Coming. Yeah. Coming to the Lord. Danger is coming, right? Yep. Uh, and I would say danger because what does it say in verse 2? How does it describe this day? Darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness. And then back in chapter 15, destruction from the Almighty. So we talked about whether this is judgment or whether this is deliverance. Here, and most of the time in the Old Testament, it's focused on the idea of destruction for those who are making themselves God's enemies. Um, and then in the middle part of verse 2, it talks about a great and mighty people. So... Again, going back to the great and mighty people, is it best to see verse 2 as talking about the locust from chapter 1 or potentially something else? Any other thoughts? Okay. And what why would you say that? So I've been thinking about this too. So when I see the phrase to many generations, 
Well, I, I guess here's the thing. I think sometimes I've heard people take a passage like this and say, this is the end times. But from the perspective of the end times, hmm, many generations is, well, let's take a couple of things together. Jesus says in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage, which would potentially imply that there are not, and this may be more than the verse is saying, that there are not families and children and all those sorts of things in quite the same way that that all happens right now. We do see, however, in the descriptions like in Isaiah and other places about uh, at least the millennial kingdom that there are still children being born. Um, so, do the many generations refer to like during the millennial kingdom? Or do the many generations refer to something more immediate and then there's nothing like it for many generations after it? Not never, but for a long time after it. Because I think sometimes we've read these verses and say, verses like this and said, there will never thing be again after it. But then to the years of many generations, I think leaves open the possibility that many years from now, something, a great destruction could happen again. So here's the, here's the basic thing that I'm getting at. And I'm not saying that I have a definitive answer on this. And it doesn't really change the focus of what, and I think it's important not to lose sight of this. Um, Sarah and I were talking about this because I think it's easy for us to get potentially lost in the details of trying to figure out which time of judgment God is referring to here. The point of it is less, again, about the timing of it and more about when you see judgment like this coming, it's supposed to lead you to repentance, right? So, um, there's a couple of possibilities, I think, for what he's talking about here in chapter 2. And there's more about it when we get to the end of the chapter that I'll explain if we get there today, and I think we may. Um, when we go and see, when we see this, this warning of a day of destruction, sometimes it seems that it's talking about things that have not yet happened, right? So, for example, uh, in fact, we'll get to that in the next few verses, so I'll hold off on that thought. Uh, locusts versus people. Go ahead, Bruce. When we said generations, everything that's in this text right here in the scripture, could that be repetitive? Um, of chapter 1? Like, could there be more destruction periods that happen theoretically during the generations? Is that what you're saying? I'm trying to make sure I'm following you. Yeah, basically, yeah. Okay. I think that's a possibility. So let's just look real quick. Um, so we see the locusts in chapter 1. All right. And then we see an army in chapter 2. All right. So the locusts, uh, particularly 1 verse 6. Um, mighty uh, teeth slash fangs uh, stripped the land. So we see that like in 6 and 7. And then um, all of this then leads to famine basically, right? Alright. Chapter 2 Mighty people. Um, and then fire slash desolation. 
and then um, leap um, like horses and then uh, crackling noise of chariots uh, noise as of chariots and then um, a little bit later it says they don't break ranks we get in the next few verses here and then um, Okay, um, let's read verses uh, 7, through, 7 through 11. Who can do 7 through 11? Jonathan, thank you. We'll get to the point of it in verses 12 through 17, but real quick before we get to the point of it, um, yeah, what's the similarity between these two or differences? Sandra? Okay. And just what Jonathan read, that was kind of my I don't know if it fits this or if I'm, you know, very off track. I mean, I think to the extent that, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to let, let you finish. No, I don't. Okay. Uh, to the extent that people don't repent, um, so my really quick comment on that verse and whether it would fit here would be if the things that if the, if the children persist in the same sins as the fathers and the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers, God's wrath persists on them. There are consequences in one generation um, that have long-term effects for later generations. So like, think about all the people that died off in the wilderness. They come into the wilderness and it's just like the parents and the kids. There's no previous generation with them. They're gone. They're dead, right? So that is a lasting effect um, that has consequences for later generations. Um, I'm not sure if that verse would apply here because this seems to very much be if you repent, this will be turned away, kind of implied. But um, it is definitely worth... Well, I mean, it is worth thinking about 
Um, the fact that God takes sin seriously and deals with it extensively or something like that. Yeah, that's worth, that's worth considering. So. so you were asking about a comparison. A comparison or contrast. Are there any similarities between these two things? Okay, so what's the point of similarity? Okay. Right. Um, so there's like this, I think, would kind of be linked to that, right? Here's the really interesting thing for me, and again, I'm not trying to take one person's side, I'm trying to say, what does the text say, right? So the text says they, um, there's a noises of chariots they leap, says they're like fire, like a mighty people arranged for battle. They run like mighty men, climb the wall like soldiers, march in line, don't deviate. Have you ever seen, probably not, but probably the closest thing I've seen to something like this was when I was down in Mexico when I was in high school, we went and saw one of the pyramids and there were like locusts or grasshoppers everywhere and around the entire thing. And just like, like just this, and they were crawling all over everything, right? Now, they weren't orderly like this was describing, but um, when it, all of these comparisons where it says, like soldiers, like a mighty army, um, they don't break ranks when they burst through the defenses. Um, all the, uh, again, I think where we struggle maybe is when we get to like verse 10, before them the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, Sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. We tend to think like, um, what's the right word? Astronomic event, like an eclipse or something like that. But if you have the land entirely covered with a swarm of bugs, what's, what can happen? Well, if they're flying in the sky, they can blot out the storm. Right. So I think in the past when I've read this, I've said, well, this has to be something that's going on in the end because um, it appears to be something that can't just be as simple as a devastation of locusts. But here's the, the uh, verse 2 or, or verse 1 where it says it's near and all those sorts of things. It, there certainly are echoes of this in what we see in Revelation, right? But this seems to be something that's happening right then and there with them. In context, it seems to be very similar to chapter 1 to me. Further thoughts on that real quick before we move on to what's the point of it. Jonathan? Yeah, when my first was looking at it, I didn't think it was the locust. But now the more I look at it, it seems to come back to the locust. In comparison, it's a greater kind of a generalization, I guess you would say. You know, I'm stepping back from this and I'm thinking these are like symbols that the Lord gave to the prophet Joel and these are like um, symbolic prophecies of saying these locusts are real however my judgment will be similar to these locust plagues and this is the kind of judgment you can expect to occur in the future sure so yeah, so that's a very important point for us to make when we look at the words of the prophets. Sometimes we think symbolism means it's not real. And it can be a very real, tangible, physical thing. Famine, drought, insects, whatever else, 
that God uses to warn the people of increasingly great destruction, and all of it is seen as coming from God's hand and leading to what we see in verses 12 to 17. Who can, who can read those for us? 12 to 17. Braden, thank you. Yes, please. Yes. Okay, so what is he calling them to do? Repent, right? Uh, notice verse 13. Rend your heart and not your garments. What's it really easy to do? Going back to what we were talking about at the beginning. What's it really easy to do when we get caught doing something bad and bad consequences happen? What's that? Yeah, but sometimes you just an outward repentance, right? Like, I got caught, this is miserable, right? Right, he wants inward repentance, right? So, uh, maybe a week or two ago, I was looking at 2 Corinthians, and um, we won't turn there, but I'll just, I'll just mention it briefly as something maybe you'd want to look at later. Um, Paul talks about the idea of repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and says, Sorrow according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So, there's true versus false repentance. God is calling them not just to do outward stuff so they get out of the consequences because he can see their hearts, but an inward repentance, okay? Why can they be confident that if they repent, God will hear them? Verse 13 and 14. God hears our hearts? Absolutely, but how does that affect God's response? Jonathan, will you... Okay, what is God like, I think, is really... Evan. Yeah, merciful, yeah. And if we look at verse 14, when it says, he might leave a grain offering and drink offering, if you have just seen the storehouses empty and you have no grain, you have no grapes on your vine, how in the world are you possibly going to have a grain offering 
and a drink offering if your, if your fields are empty and your vines are barren. If God provided man in the wilderness, could he make them grow again even though the locusts have eaten them? Yes. And so um, the prophet, I think, is not saying absolutely he will take away all the consequences of your sin, but he's saying there's the possibility because he has the power to do it and he's a gracious and compassionate God. Sandra? Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not just a thing for Catholicism or a lot of other things. There's parts of this that sound like, like someone could read verse 14 and say that it sounds like Islam where it says, the Lord compassionate and gracious, may he forgive us. But there doesn't seem to be an expectation that he will. But I don't think Joel is saying God won't forgive. I think the question mark is, does the famine immediately go away, right? So those are two different things. One is, does God actually forgive? We can be confident of that. Do the consequences of sin linger? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a fair point to see. It's interesting to see the parallels between verses 15 through 17 and chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, right? So gather the people, the priests are supposed to lead in repentance and worship, all those sorts of things. Devin, did you have a thought? Okay. Um, and then we come... Yes, Mary. Right. And um, they never remember it. Yeah. Sadly, over and over again, there's a handful of exceptions, but for the most part, God holds out the possibility of repentance. Um, I think a passage like this explains the whole, the places where it talks about God changing his mind or God relenting. It's in the context of if people have a response of turning away from their sin, the judgment passes, right? Happened with Jonah in Nineveh, happened with... Um, uh, various other places in the Old Testament and, um, and so I think that's helpful for thinking through God's response to sin when he says here's what's going to happen if people repent like Hezekiah God often is, is gracious he's always gracious he often grants more time and deliverance and all those sorts of things uh, let's read verses Let's see, 18 down through 27. That's probably as far as we'll get for today. 18 to 27, who wants to read that for us? Yeah. 
Evan, thank you. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into, uh, I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. And its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul snow will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, feast of fields, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. All right, what do we notice from these verses as we wrap up here this morning? Sandra? Okay, yeah. Okay. Good. What does God do with the army in verses 20 and, well, basically verse 20? I think it's interesting it says it's driven into the sea, right? What does God do to part the Red Sea? Right? What would a wind do to a, a swarm of locusts? Into? And they would drown. But the, sea, the seashore is not going to be pleasant for a while after that, right? You ever gone down when there's a bunch of black flies and fish flies and all that drowned on the edge of the lake, right? So, I think, and look, look also at verse 25. I will make up for you the years that the locust has eaten and all the different kinds of locusts. Again, I think that goes back to chapter 1, verse 4, right? All the things that these, all, these various kinds of locusts have consumed the crops. There's a restoration of crops in verse 22, right? Pastures turn green. The early and the later rains, verse 23, leads to a harvest in verse 24, leads to plenty of food in verse 26, leads to being reminded that God is their God in verse 27. There is, I think, a little bit of tension that where we stand today, looking back on it, uh, verse 26 is... Mm. 
When you think of something like the Holocaust, and then you look at verse 26, I think it raises a question mark in your mind a little bit, at least for me, right? Not something we're going to solve today, not really the point of the chapter, but just something to consider in terms of understanding what he means by put to shame, right? I think in context, it is basically saying he's not going to put them to shame for the sake of their own sin in this way because this was their own fault. Something like the Holocaust was not their own fault. It wasn't, um, I don't think there's any reason that we could say something like that was a, uh, it was a wicked, evil thing done by a wicked, evil man who led a lot of people, some of whom were wicked and some of whom were just ignorant, naive, but still did terrible things to um, terrorize God's people. And so, uh, when it says there in verse 26, not be put to shame, this is clearly in Joel a response to their idolatry. There are people who have said something like the Holocaust is a response to what they did to Jesus in the first century. And I think there's no scriptural basis for a statement like that. I think that's a false understanding of things. Um, I think it would be a parallel to what we see in John 9. Why did this happen? Was it because this man sinned or his parents? No, but that God would be glorified. There are people who came to glorify God through the testimony of his people who were trusting in him in the midst of those terrible things, uh, like we see in John 9. I don't think that we can see it as a parallel here to Joel. Uh, and so... Um, but, again, that's not the main point of this. The main point of this was in their day. Here is a plague of locusts. Here's perhaps a second wave that's coming if they don't repent. God's uh, opportunity that he holds out to them is if you repent, even though they have destroyed the land and stripped it bare of everything that you can eat or drink, I can restore it, I will forgive, I'm a gracious and compassionate God. There has to be repentance to bring about that result. We're going to look at the end of chapter 2 because there's some parallels to the book of Acts, and we don't really have time to get into that right now. Any quick questions or thoughts as we wrap up here with chapter, the rest of chapter 2? Devin? Uh, I would say I think this is a plague of locusts. And I think... Um, so I think the difference for me would be in Isaiah, it says, here is an army like the sea, and here it says, here is a mighty host like an army. Yes. If you see... Um, I can't remember the other parallels, but I feel like in Proverbs it talks about like the people of, I don't know, the rock badgers or whatever, right? So I don't think the word people is exclusively used to describe humans, I guess would be what I would say. Any other thoughts or questions here as we... Mary? Yeah. Right. Right. 
Yeah, as, as terrible as what happened during the exile was, it seems to have broken God's people of the desire to pursue idols the way that they did. It doesn't mean that they turned wholeheartedly to God, but it means this sort of consistent returning to idol, God, idols, God basically breaks them of it. By way of application, sometimes God uses intense difficulty and great loss in our lives to uh, focus and mm, purge us of the desire for certain sins, maybe, I guess. So, I guess the warning for us would be something along these lines. If you have a sin that you love, and if God went to such great lengths to purge the Israelites of their sin of idolatry, what conclusion should we draw about our sin if we are, in fact, God's people? If we don't deal with it, God will deal with it for us. And uh, I don't say that to say that God is cruel or vindictive or anything like that, but God is so concerned that we are devoted to him as his people that he will go to great and remarkable lengths to turn our hearts to him. All right, let's close there for today. We'll head into the morning service. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths. I pray that we would consider them carefully, uh, be warned by them, uh, seek to understand what the passage is talking about, but even more than the specific meaning of each phrase and each verse, that our hearts would be stirred to repentance, because that's the point that you are calling your people to, and that's the point that I think that you're calling us to through this passage as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.